think we'll have my wife back. Uh, she was gone again this week. Uh, what a blessing she is to me personally, but just also just all that she does um, to allow me to minister to you. And so I want to publicly thank her um, for not only helping our family, but then also uh, being back so that we can get kind of back into some kind of routine, hopefully here as a family, as a church. We're going to resume our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning, which we uh, we kind of came to the end of chapter 12 a few weeks into December and decided maybe to stop it off there, <clears throat> think about Christmas and the New Year. But we want to go back to the Gospel of Luke and pick up where we left off, which is in chapter 13. And the Gospel has been a blessing to me to be to be able to preach to, not only because it tells us about the life of Christ and um, adds more and more of my to my love for Him and my desire to follow Him as a disciple, but it is also to keep our eye, just keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus every week. 2020 was a year, wasn't it? A difficult year. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we were kind of thinking about the new year, uh, 2021 is not a lot different than 2020. Already, happy new year. You get the same as you did last year, right? Uh, and so to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to keep our eyes fixed in our discipleship and uh, to grow in our love for him and to keep walking in obedience to him, we want to keep uh, looking at the gospel. And so we're, we're going to come back to the gospel of Luke uh, chapter 13, we're about halfway through uh, the gospel. But, uh, Jesus, just to kind of pick up where we left off, Jesus has been teaching in the last few passages at the end of chapter 12 on the reality of God's judgment, the fact that it's, it's, it's a thing, it's coming, and the nature of God's judgment, what it actually is. And in proclaiming that message of judgment, he is calling the Jews to understand what is coming, what is coming for them, and to understand who he is and his role in that, the significance, the part that he plays in, in the judgment of God. Jesus has proven to the Jews through his words of truth, through his, his works of power, that he was the Messiah that God had sent to bring in God's kingdom. That was his mission, to bring in the kingdom of God. That kingdom will necessarily crush rival kingdoms. Part of what it means for the kingdom of God to come into this world is that God will destroy those who are opposed to him. And the Jews, the descendants of Israel, had followed in their ancestors' footsteps and they had broken faith in their covenant relationship with God. They had not been faithful to the covenant. They had walked in disobedience. And the Jews are continuing to live outside of the covenant parameters that God gave to them. Well, now that Messiah had come... God's justice had come with him. God's judgment was marching on. And because of that, the Jews are in danger. Because of their faithlessness, the Jews are in danger. In fact, in chapter 12, verses 57 to 59, Jesus related a parable that indicated that even now they were being ushered to the court of justice, where the sentence of eternal condemnation would be pronounced against them, but Jesus, even in that parable, exhorts them to settle with their accuser before they arrive at the court so that they might avert God's judgment and receive his blessing. Well, Jesus continues this theme of repentance that we see at the end of chapter 12 in our passage today, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, when Jesus is informed of, of some recent events at that time. Jesus turns the report from a conversation about current events to an opportunity to call these people to repent. And then he tells them a parable in verses 6 through 9 to illustrate their spiritual condition 
and why urgent repentance was necessary for them. So let's look at the passage, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then... If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. As you can tell, I think, from this passage, the main theme is repentance. Jesus calls his hearers to repent. You see verse 3, for instance. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he says almost the same thing in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In fact, those verses are translated identically in the English. The only difference is the word likewise. Those two words are different in the Greek language. Jesus is calling his hearers to repentance. And so I think it's a good thing for us to think about Jesus' call to repentance here. What is repentance? And why must we Repent. Let me make three observations about the passage. First observation, observation number one. Repent because you will perish. Repent because you will perish. The passage opens with a contingent of people who have come to Jesus to inform him about uh, some recent events that had taken place. And maybe even more than just informing him, they are trying to ascertain his opinion about this recent event. That event is that some Galileans were murdered by Pilate and their blood had become mixed with the blood of the sacrifices that they were offering. Now this is the same Pilate who ordered Jesus' crucifixion later in the Gospel story that we'll come to when we get to chapter 23. Pontius Pilate, as you might know, served as governor of Judea from the years 26 to 36 A.D., He hated the Jews. He despised the Jews, and the Jews despised him. We don't know how capable a ruler Pilate was, but many seem to think that at least Rome considered him to be an asset because he kept the peace. In fact, Pilate was quite violent toward the Jews as a way of suppressing foment and revolt and insurrection. When those things kind of cropped up, uh, Pilate seemed to do a very good job from a Roman perspective of putting those down. Because many of the Jews hated Roman rule, tempers frequently ran hot, and sometimes they boiled over in outward public displeasure, such as protests and riots and insurrections. And these took place more so in Galilee than in any other place in that region. In Galilee, the hatred of the Jews was, was so pronounced that it, it, was, it far exceeded that of, of, of other Jews that lived in Judea or Samaria. 
both Josephus, the Jewish historian, and Philo, the contemporary Jewish philosopher living in Egypt at this time, preserve accounts of Pilate's violent suppression of Jewish rebellions against Rome. And in fact, when Pilate had sort of gone over the edge, when he had taken his suppression to a new level, when he quelled violence and, and insurrection that was taking place in Samaria in AD 36, he was abruptly removed from his post. So what's happening in this situation in verse 1? We have uh, just a simple note. The Galileans, uh, that Pilate had murdered the Galileans and mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. But there's not really a lot more detail about that. We don't have any other information from extra-biblical sources to know what's going on. So there's a couple of possibilities of what's happening here. First, it seems that there were some Jews from Galilee who had come to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices at the temple, as you are aware, the Jews could only make sacrifices at the temple. They could not do it. They were not permitted by the Old Testament law to do it in other places in that region. They had to do it specifically at the temple. And those sacrifices could only be offered by an Old Testament priest, someone in the priestly lineage. So it seems that these Galileans have made some kind of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to participate in an act of worship. That They are, they are going through more than just what they would do at the synagogue. They are going through the full act of worship, the, the full liturgy of worship, if you will, that included an animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. So when they had come, if according to this thought, this, this model, this, this uh, supposition, when, they came, when these Galileans came to the temple to offer their sacrifices, Pilate intervened and massacred them. As he killed them, their blood became mixed with the blood of the sacrifices that were being offered on their behalf. And both the Galileans and the sacrifices became desecrated. The Galileans by a dishonorable death, the sacrifices by being polluted with human blood. There is a second possibility, which is very similar to the first, but a little bit different. And that possibility is that the Galilean Jews had come from Galilee to Jerusalem, but instead of just coming to worship just generically at the temple, they were coming to celebrate the Passover. All Jews were required to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem according to the law, and the Passover sacrifice is more democratized, if you will. It doesn't have to be offered by a priest. The head of each household can offer a sacrifice for his own family. And so these Galileans may have come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And in the process of sacrificing the Passover lambs, Pilate ordered the massacre of these Galileans so that, again, the blood of the Galileans became mixed with the blood of the Passover lambs. They ran together and thus desecrated both the Galileans by a dishonorable death and the, the sacrifice of the Passover lambs and the celebration of Passover, desecrating that celebration, that holiday. So either way you slice it, either of these alternatives, this is a horrific tragedy. This is an unconscionable act. So the question is, why would Pilate act so brutally toward these Jews? It seems like they are doing nothing more than worshiping or celebrating an important holiday, an important festival that's required by the Old Testament law. Well, the fact that Luke identifies those who died as Galileans may indicate that these Galileans in particular were doing more than just worshiping. They were doing more than just celebrating the Passover. That they may have had more nefarious plans. That they may have been plotting a, some kind of an insurrection or, or a riot. And that news of that insurrection or riot, the, the plans uh, came back to Pilate. He got wind of those, of those happenings before they actually happened and that he preemptively put these Galileans to death. He acted to quell any kind of brewing violence. Or, even if he had not gotten word of any kind of violent intentions by the Galileans, he may have just thought, these are Galileans. 
Like these Galileans are no good. They, they are seditious to Rome. And so he preemptively, without any kind of cause or, or inclination, put them to death. He has just assumed that they were no good. And so he massacred them just to maintain the peace. So that seems to have been something like what happened there. Some, without knowing the full specifics, we at least know that the Galileans died at Pilate's hands. That they died a tragic, a horrific death. But what was the motive for these, those who come, those who were present? The, the verb says there were present. In the Greek, it more literally means arrived. Those who had come to tell Jesus this news, why would they make this report to Jesus? Were they simply informing him about current events? Were they seeking some kind of comment from him? Do they want him to speak about this, right? Just like in the media, right? When something happens, you go stick a microphone in somebody's important face. What do you think about this? Right? Jesus, what do you think about this event that happened? Pilate massacred these Galileans. Their blood mixed together with their sacrifices. What do you think about it? Were they genuinely interested in his opinion? Were they attempting to get, something, get him to say something that would put him in a precarious position, something that they could use against him? Either to alienate him from Jews who hated Rome, or to report him as seditious to the Romans. We don't know. But either way, I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't really comment on the nature of what's happening. He doesn't really give an opinion. But he shifts the discussion away from an abstract conversation about current events to a call to them to repent. In fact, Jesus, I think, resets how they and how we should think about this incident. In fact, Jesus does two things at the same time. First, he acknowledges how they are thinking about this atrocity. They have some kind of an interpretive lens. They have a filter. There's a way that they're thinking about this and interpreting how these events have occurred and why they have occurred. And in fact, they're Jews, right? They're probably interpreting this from the traditional Jewish understanding of tragedy and suffering. In fact, it's a worldview that dominates much of the Old Testament. It's the worldview reflected in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the worldview reflected by Job's friends. This tragic event happened because there was some egregious sin that preceded it. That when you sin, that when you sin in an, in a, in a, in an extraordinary way, that there will be some extraordinary consequence for that sin. The greater the sin, the greater the tragedy. The magnitude of the tragedy must reveal the magnitude of the sin. So these Galileans must have committed some extraordinary sins to warrant this kind of death. This is such a horrific death, an atrocious death. They must have done something to deserve it. That's sort of the traditional worldview that the Jews are operating with. And while the Old Testament acknowledges that this is one way to explain tragedy and suffering, it is not the only way. In fact, Jesus undermines and corrects the assessment of these Jews about the Galileans. In verse 2 he says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, Jesus is saying they may not necessarily have been worse sinners. They, the other Galileans are sinners too. Just because they have that died in an extraordinary way does not mean they committed extraordinary sin. Don't think that they are worse sinners because they died an unconscionable death. But at the same time, Jesus is also redirecting them to consider their own souls, their own sinfulness, their own spiritual condition, 
their own eternal perspective, their situation from an, their, from an eternal perspective. Notice in verse 3 how Jesus uses the word you three times in an emphatic way. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's emphasizing them, his hearers. Not those who died, not the other Galileans, but you who have brought this news to me. He's getting them to personally reflect about themselves. He's deflecting attention away from the Galileans who died to those who are still living. And then he associates these Jews who are reporting the news to Jesus with those Galileans who have died, right? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The likewise kind of lumps in the Jews who are listening to Jesus to the Galileans who died. The Galileans aren't worse than those who are hearing Jesus, nor are they better than the Galileans. Jesus says that unless they repent, they will perish just like the Galileans have perished. Now, when Jesus says likewise in verse 3, I don't think he means that they're going to suffer the exact same kind of death, that they're not going to be massacred by Pilate when they go to the temple to worship or offer their, uh, their, 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 to celebrate the Passover. I don't think he means that they're going to die in the exact same manner as the Galileans died. The emphasis here is on the word perish. They will experience the same ultimate fate as the Galileans. They too will die, both in this life and in the next. Again, in verse 13, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The perish there is emphatic. That's the thing to be concerned about. The Galileans perished. The Jews Jews who are bringing this report to Jesus will perish. And it's not because one has a greater sin than another. They will suffer the same fate, both in this life and in the next. Perishing here, I think, does include physical death, but it really emphasizes eternal death. It's emphasizing the just condemnation that that sinners are due because of their sin. The condemnation that comes as God's judgment upon them. Remember the most famous verse, right, of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is speaking there about spiritual death, eternal death, death that comes at the time of judgment, the second death. He's juxtaposing perishing with eternal life. That's the problem. That's the ultimate danger. The Galileans perished not because they were egregious sinners, but because they were just sinners. Ordinary, guard variety, typical human being sinners. They weren't extraordinary sinners They were just sinners. And Jesus says to these Jews that they too will perish. That they too will suffer the righteous wrath of God in eternal judgment. Not because their sin is on the same level as those of the Galileans, but because they are sinners who have lived lives in rebellion to God. Not, again, the nature of the sin. It's the fact that we are sinners in general. And we can apply this message, this exhortation, not just to the Jews who are listening to Jesus, but to all people, right? This isn't, again, just something isolated to those who are bringing this report to Jesus. This is true for all people. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is true for everybody. We are all sinners, therefore we are all deserving of death. We deserve to perish. Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So apart from the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, all human beings, without exception, will perish. We may not be massacred by our governing rulers. We may live to a ripe old age. But we will die. In the end, we will die. We will all die. And because we are sinners, death extends to eternity. If it were not for Christ, we would perish. So if you happen to be here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me speak to you just for a moment. I would ask you to consider your eternal destiny. Don't think about your life just right now in the here and now. Don't just think about your life in this moment. Think about your life from an eternal perspective. Understand that unless something changes, that you will perish like these Galileans who were massacred by Pilate. Because we are sinners, because we will perish, Jesus called the Jews of that time and He calls us to repentance. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless they repent, unless we repent, they will perish like the Galileans, we will perish like the Galileans. Repentance is our only hope of salvation. Now, what does Jesus mean by repentance? The word repent in the Greek language just simply means to change your mind, a change of mind. But it's not simply changing the way that we think, right? The way that we think must be translated to the way that we live. So the change of mind means that there's also a change of heart, which then affects itself in a, way, in a change of life. In the Hebrew language, the word that the Jews used in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, for repentance was the word that simply means turn or turn away or turn around. The picture is of someone going in one direction, in the wrong direction, in the way of death, in the way of condemnation, and then turning in the other direction, turning away from rebellion, away from sinfulness, away from condemnation, and towards God and towards life. We turn away from our sins that lead us away from God and we turn back to God for salvation. So Jesus is calling the Jews here to turn from their sinfulness. Their sinfulness has led them far from God. It has led them in the opposite direction that they should have gone. It has incited His holy anger. It has brought about the promise of His judgment. Living in sin and rebellion puts the Jews here in great danger. But if they will turn from their sin and return to God... There is hope that God will save. This message of repentance, it sounds so hard. But it's so, and it, sound, it may sound so new, because we don't emphasize it enough, I think, in the proclamation of the gospel. But when Jesus began proclaiming the gospel, when he began his ministry, he summarized the gospel message in this way. Mark 1.14, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God had sent Jesus to this world to set in motion the wheels of divine justice, but he also brought with him the promise of salvation, that if anyone would repent of their sins and put their trust in him, 
they would be saved from eternal judgment. And they would come to possess eternal life, the opposite of perishing. And so if these Jews who are reporting this atrocity to Jesus would be saved and not perish like the Galileans, they should repent and find salvation in Jesus the Messiah. And of course, that message hasn't ended, right? That message still applies today. God has not yet brought about his final judgment. And so again, I would say to you, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, there is hope for you. If judgment is your destiny, the hope is that you may be saved from that judgment. That if you will take this moment and repent of your sins and turn to Christ, he promises that you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, Jesus, call, Jesus emphasizes this call to repentance by pointing to another catastrophic incident that took place at the Tower of Siloam in verses 4 and 5. So Jesus doesn't necessarily hear a report from this crowd. He brings up something that they probably should have known, something that was probably on first century Jerusalem CNN, right? This is the news that's been circulating. Pilate, massacre of the Galileans. Next, after this commercial break, the tower at Siloam that fell, right? That's something that was, that was known to them. And Jesus is pointing out and using this as an example. He volunteers this as, a, as an example to reinforce his call to repentance. Now, Siloam, I think I've got a map up there. You want to put it up there? Anya? There we go. At the very bottom, circled in red, is this place called Siloam. It was a neighborhood in the southeastern part of Jerusalem. And there at Siloam, there was an intersection of uh, the walls around Jerusalem. They intersected there, the southern portion of the wall and the eastern portion of the wall. We don't have any other incident about this or any other information about this incident that occurred except that a tower collapsed and that 18 people died. Now, you can, I think, see from the map there, it, it circles the Siloam Pool. There was a, a reservoir of water that was there and that it's possible this tower may have been part of an aqueduct system that carried water into this reservoir and out of this reservoir. I think Pilate actually was instrumental in building uh, this reservoir, if I remember that correctly. That maybe part of this aqueduct had fallen and in the process of it falling down, 18 people died. Or it could have been, the tower could have been the point where the southern and eastern walls came together. There probably would have been a watchtower there to, to look out and to maintain defense of the city. And it's possible that that watchtower fell and killed 18 people. Either way, however the tower collapsed, it probably collapsed accidentally. It probably was not again done purposely, but 18 people died unexpectedly and tragically. So like Pilate's massacre of the Galileans, the Jews would have interpreted the tower's collapse to be an act of God and judgment toward the 18 that perished. Oh man, those 18, man, they suffered this tragic, horrific death. They must have done something really bad to deserve it. The temptation would have been to think of these 18 as egregious sinners who died tragically because of the sins they had committed, the nature of their sins they had committed. But again, Jesus anticipates how the Jews would think of these 18, and he corrects the thinking of the Jews and redirects them to consider their own spiritual condition before God. The 18 here who died when the Tower of Siloam collapsed were not more egregious sinners than the Jews who are talking to Jesus. In fact, Jesus says that they were worthy of perishing when the Tower fell. Not because they were egregious sinners, just because they were sinners. They were just sinners. And if any of the Jews who are talking to Jesus now had been there on that day, they too would have died. Not because they are egregious sinners, but because they are just sinners. 
So Jesus is emphasizing and reinforcing the earlier point. These Jews will perish like the victims at Siloam. A perishing that includes not only eternal death, but eternal condemnation. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to call the Jews to repent, to turn from their sinfulness and to turn to God and find salvation in the one that he had sent to bring salvation and life. Unless they repent, they will perish. Well, friends, Jesus is calling us to repent. If we fail to repent, then we perish because we remain in our sinfulness. The sin problem has not been taken care of. We will one day stand before a holy and righteous God, the judge of all the earth, who will mete out perfect justice and condemn us to his everlasting wrath. Not because he's some sort of ogre or killjoy, cosmic killjoy, because we deserve, that's what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. So our only hope is to repent. And Jesus' call here to repentance is not fraught with anger or frustration. It is a sign of God's mercy. That's the second observation I want to make about this passage. Jesus calls us to repent because God is merciful. Repent because God is merciful. Again, I put the word repent in there deliberately because that's the main point. If you get nothing else about this verse, this past set of passages, it's that Jesus is calling us to repent. But why ought we, ought we to repent? Because God is merciful. He is extending His mercy to us. In fact, the fact that God had not yet sent His judgment against the Jews for their sinfulness is a sign of mercy in itself. Go back to the original sin, the very beginning, right, in creation. When God commanded Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, He included a promise. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded a man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So that's the, that's the commandment, right? Eat any tree in the garden. It is yours for the taking, but don't eat this one tree, this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat that one. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit? Did they die? Okay, in a spiritual sense, yes. They were cut off from relationship with God. Okay, yes, they be, the process of dying began. That would ultimately take its effect 900 and something years later. But they did not die that day as God promised. In that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why didn't they die that day? The mercy of God. They should have died. By the mercy of God, God allowed them to live. So if the wages of sin is death, when you go to work, you're paid a wage, right? For the time that you work, you receive a payment for that. The wages of sin is death. When you sin, what should you receive? Death. And you don't have to wait two weeks for it. Or a month. Whenever payday is. In the moment that you sin, we should die. Any time that we sin, we should die. But God, by His great mercy has delayed His judgment so that we might come to attain the promise of His salvation. The fact that they didn't die yet is by the mercy of God. The fact that God sent Jesus to warn the Jews and to warn us of the coming judgment is a sign of His mercy. 
Jesus, by His ministry, reveals the true nature of our spiritual condition. He reveals the reality of God's judgment. And He calls us to repent so that we might not perish, but be saved from God's judgment. This is mercy. In fact, it's the parable that Jesus tells reveals even more about the mercy of God that should lead us to repentance. In this parable, the vineyard owner planted a fig tree in his vineyard. He planted it because he wanted figs. This is not a decorative tree. This isn't... He didn't plant it for ornamental or aesthetic purposes. He planted it for its functionality. The fact that it produces figs. It should produce figs. Now, figs typically bear annually and prolifically. I remember one time when we were in in Texas serving at a small church out there during our seminary years, uh, we lived in the church parsonage, and out in front of of the... In the front yard was this big fig tree, and every summer when that thing produced figs, they exploded. I mean, they were a bunch of figs. There were figs everywhere. They were prolific. Every year, like clockwork, you could expect those figs to come up on that tree. It could take up to three years for a fig tree to start maximizing its potential. But there would have been figs on earlier when it was planted. In this parable, the owner checked for figs every year. And not only in the third year had it not maximized its potential, it hadn't even produced a single fig. And so by, the t- by this time... This tree should be bearing abundant fruit. There should be lots of figs on that tree to be harvested. And the fact that he has not harvested even a single fig causes him to address the vine dresser, the attendant, to cut the fig tree down. It's not serving its purpose. It's not serving its purpose. It has no use to the owner. It's consuming essential resources. It's taking up space that could be used for another tree that would be productive and give the owner what he wants. So the vineyard owner had given a command. This tree must perish. Cut it down. But the vine dresser offers another possibility. Instead of cutting the tree down now, as the vine dresser, as as the vineyard owner wants and thinks is necessary, the vine dresser suggests holding off for one more year. Give it one more chance, one more year to produce. He'll even dig around the tree, loosen up the soil near the roots so that it can absorb water more easily spread around manure to give it the the fertilizer that it needs with the the essential resources that it would need to produce figs. If after another year then of special attention it has not borne a healthy harvest of figs, then the tree can be cut down. Give it one more year. And so the owner consents. The fig tree gets an additional opportunity to produce. Judgment day has been delayed by one more year. Well, what is the spiritual reality that Jesus is teaching in this parable? It is that God is showing mercy, great mercy to the Jews by delaying his promised judgment. In this particular parable, the fig tree represents the Jews. The fig tree was a common metaphor, a common image for Israel in the Old Testament. And the vineyard owner here represents God. The fig tree is the tender and prized possession of the vineyard owner, just as the Jews were God's special people, the covenant people. They were his prized possession. He lived in exclusive, special covenant relationship with them. The vineyard owner had every right to expect his fig tree to produce because that was its value to the owner. And God had every right to expect his people to live in covenant faithfulness to him. But like the fig tree, the Jews bore no fruit. They failed to live up to their covenant obligations. Because they bore no fruit, God was about to bring his judgments upon them. In the words of John the Baptist, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. 
The Jews would perish because of their sinfulness. But the vine dresser intercedes and offers a merciful option, much as Jesus offers God's mercy. Jesus came into the world both to initiate judgment, but also to offer salvation from judgment. With Jesus, the wheels of divine justice begin to turn. He begins the process of putting down God's enemies. That's part of the mission of the kingdom of God. But even as he does this, he is also extending the opportunity for mercy. He extends God's mercy by offering salvation in himself, calling people again to repent and to turn to him. He will save them. So as he calls people to repent, he is opening the door of the kingdom of God to all those who will trust him and find salvation in him. But those doors will not stay open forever. Judgment will come at some point. So those in danger of judgment must avail themselves of the opportunity to receive his mercy. Friends, God has shown us great mercy in Christ. He sent Jesus into this world to make the necessary sacrifice that would pay the penalty of our sins so we might be saved from God's judgment and possess eternal life. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-6, through 6, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because God has shown us great mercy, then we must repent. We must take advantage of God's mercy while the door of mercy is open to us. Therefore, do not presume upon the mercy of God. As Paul warned the Jews in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness, His mercy, is meant to bring us to repent. It's meant to bring us to the door of salvation so that we might enter in and experience eternal life. As Peter acknowledges in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The patience of God, the mercy of God, leads us to repentance. All peoples should come to the point of repentance. Jesus calls us to repent because God is merciful. He has shown us great mercy by delaying the judgment that we deserve for our sins. But we cannot presume upon God's mercy by thinking that we can avail ourselves of this mercy at any time. The door of God's mercy will close at some point, either when we die or when Christ returns. And that brings us then to the final observation to make this passage. Repent because time is short. Repent because time is short. Again, the key point is repentance. But Jesus now emphasizes the final reason that should motivate us to repent. The time for repentance is short. The opportunity to repent will not always remain. Look at how the parable ends in verse 9. The vineyard owner allows the vine dresser one more year to tend the fig tree. He shows the tree mercy. If the tree responds in that year and begins to produce fruit, then well and good. The owner has received what he wants from the tree. The tree has served its purposes. The owner's desire for the fig tree are accomplished. He gained what he intended for the fig tree when he planted it in the first place. But if the fig tree does not respond to the care of the vine dresser, 
and it still does not produce figs, that the owner has determined that the fig tree should be cut down. The fig tree may have a new lease on life, but if it doesn't bear, then the door of opportunity will be closed and closed for good. The vine dresser will cut it down and it will perish. What is the lesson to be learned? God's mercy toward us will not last forever. There is a limit to his mercy. We should not presume upon the mercy of God, thinking that it will always be available to us. The time for repentance is short, and therefore we must repent while the opportunity remains. The only guarantee that we have of God's mercy is this moment. Friends, we cannot think that we will always have the opportunity to repent. Life is fragile. We prayed for some families on Wednesday night this week. A young man, 18 years old, died in a car accident. I don't think he was expecting to die that night. I don't think his family was expecting to die that night. Life is fragile. We don't know the hour that God has appointed for us to die. We may think that we have days or weeks or months or even years. But do we know if something tragic will happen to us as it did to the Galileans? Do you think they went to their sacrifices thinking that they would die that day? Do we know if we'll suffer some random catastrophe? Do you think the 18 who went out to the Tower of Siloam that morning thought they wouldn't be coming home that night? Of course not. Today may be the last day that we have been given. This church service may be the last experience that we have in this life. Again, I don't want to scare anybody. I just want to be realistic. We have this moment. And when it is gone, it is gone. When we die, the opportunity to repent will be closed to us. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So again, friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to hear Jesus' words. They transcend time. They pierce through 2,000 years. Jesus continues to call people, including you, to repent. So heed his call. Turn from your sins. Turn to God. Believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus and his sacrifice for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have already repented and believed the gospel. Praise God that in his mercy, we heard he gave us faith to believe. We apprehended the gospel by faith. We are already We've already repented and believed the gospel, but we are to keep repenting and keep believing. Repentance is a sign and a fruit that we are, that we are truly believing the gospel. It is a sign and a fruit that we are truly the children of God. And so it is good and right for us, especially at the beginning of a new year perhaps, to regularly examine ourselves to see if we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Keep walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But Jesus' words should also lead us to pray for those we know who need the gospel. Pray that the lost would repent while they have the opportunity. Pray that they will hear his message. 
be motivated by Jesus' words to share that message of repentance with others so that they will not perish but have eternal life. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. May God give us the grace to repent and to walk in the newness of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful as your people for your word. We are thankful, Lord. We all come to this church on this day from different experiences, different backgrounds. We thank you, Lord, that in your kindness, that at some point along the way, you have spoken to us through your word, through the gospel message, and you've enabled us to repent. You've given us the call. You've helped us to heed it. We have repented. We are believing. So help us to continue in this way. Help us not to be distracted by the voices of our culture that would cause us to leave the straight and narrow way, to give up on Jesus. But may we continue to walk in his way and in his path, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Lord, we also pray this morning for our friends, our loved ones, our co-workers, those that we know that are lost. And we pray, Lord, you might be merciful to them. That in this moment that they have, that they would take advantage of the opportunity of your mercy and be saved. Help them to see things, Lord, from your perspective. Help us, Lord, to be catalysts, to be witnesses that will share the message of truth, that will patiently walk with them and answer questions and pray for them and have conversations with them, Lord, so that they might become saved. We desire nothing more, Lord, to see your kingdom expand and grow and be filled with more and more worshipers. Lord, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of worshipers. You are worthy of glory. So by your grace, Lord, by your power, send your gospel forth so that more and more are brought into your kingdom. We praise you, Lord. Help us to be faithful in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.